and welcome to Powerhouse Politics. I'm ABC News Chief White House Correspondent Jonathan Carl. And I'm ABC News Political Director Rick Klein. Rick, I am coming to you from the British countryside. Uh, I have just left the venue uh, for the NATO meeting way out there somewhere in the outskirts of London. Uh, We were uh, attempting, well, expecting to attend a press conference by the President of the United States... The press conference was abruptly canceled, uh, and he is on his way back to Washington. Would you say that he left in a huff? I, what was behind this, John, that he decided to, to, to not do a news conference? Obviously, he answered a lot of questions from reporters for the last couple of days, but it's a curious time to cancel that opportunity, given the fact that uh, we're in the middle of the first impeachment hearing in the House Judiciary Committee as we speak. I was quite anticipating this uh, split-screen moment because the press conference was scheduled for almost exactly to coincide with the start of that impeachment hearing in the House Judiciary Committee. I, you know, I wouldn't say it was quite a huff. Uh, I've got a couple of possibilities here. First of all, as you pointed out, he he answered a hell of a lot of questions here. Uh, he's been out here for a couple of days. He's had a series of bilateral meetings. Each one of these, well, most of them, uh, they, you bring in the cameras, and he's taken questions. Uh, there was one that uh, he took 52 minutes worth of questions from the press pool, which, by the way, that's a, that's a lot of work for the handful of reporters that go in. You've got, you've got you know, just, just a handful of reporters going in representing everybody else. Usually these photo ops last for, I mean, under Obama, they would sometimes last for less than a minute. Come in, take the pictures, get the hell out of here so we can get on with our private meeting. Uh, but uh, with, with Trump, these these went on for, for quite some time. Uh, like I said, 52 minutes with the head of NATO, uh, 40-some minutes with um, uh, Macron, uh, the president of France, uh, uh, Justin Trudeau had one that went on for a similar amount of time. So uh, it could be that he just got sick of answering questions. It could have been that maybe he wanted to get on Air Force One and check out the impeachment hearings. You know, he, did, he, does, he does like to... He does like to hate watch these things. <laughs> or there's another possible factor here. I'm sure you saw that hot mic, mo- hot mic moment. Uh, did you, Rick? I did. I did indeed. It sounded. It sounded kind of kind of interesting. What you know, he he likes to say that um, the world is laughing at the United States. But what happened here? Well, this was uh, re- reception with the various leaders of NATO, and they have. Um, you know, the camera's kind of rolling for, for, for the beginning of it. And there was a little assemblage that included uh, Justin Trudeau, uh, Boris Johnson, and, uh, and several others, and, um, of course, Macron. And they, they were there, and uh, they seemed to be... I mean, it's hard to know exactly what was going on, Rick. You don't hear the conversation crystal clear, right. you know. But... Uh, but they seem to be kind of laughing about uh, about Trump, about his, uh, you know, about the long impromptu press availabilities that these photo ops turned into. And um, at one point, uh, Trudeau said that uh, he, he could see the staff and their jaws drop to the floor. Uh, Trudeau was later asked about that, like what he was talking about, and he said he was referring to the fact that when the two of them were together before the cameras, the president seemed to surprise a lot of folks by formally announcing that the G7 meeting that America is hosting next year, you know, the one that was, you know, potentially going to be at the Trump Doral in Miami, remember? I remember that, yeah. Uh, he said that it's going to be at um, at Camp David, mm. which we kind of expected yeah. but hadn't been announced. 
So, um, Trudeau said that's what he was referring to when he said the staff's jaw dropped to the floor. I, you know, I, I've seen some jaws drop, uh, Trump, Trump senior staff. I, I don't know if that would be my top 10 or 50 list of things, but who knows? <laughs> Yeah, and and it, and it seemed like um, the president was having a little fun uh, tangling with some of these world leaders, with Macron and also with Trudeau. I, I was struck by uh, by how the president uh, ended that exchange uh, just just before he decided to uh, to pull out. Yeah, so so I I, I should say the, the the president was asked about this little hot mic mo- mic moment, which you know, look, it's kind of trivial what they were talking about, but it, but it's this the, the idea that a group of uh, foreign leaders were or appeared to be laughing at uh, President Trump. That's not something he, you know, it's not, I mean, I guess nobody really likes that kind of thing. But, but, but here's what he said when he was asked about it. Well, he's two-faced. Do you think that Germany is too naive? And honestly, with Trudeau, he's a nice guy. I, I find him to be a very nice guy. But, you know, the truth is that uh, I called him out on the fact that he's not paying 2%, and I guess he's not very happy about it. Yeah. So, did you catch that? By the way, so the reason why, so, so you know, Trudeau was the one kind of leading the little conversation, the little laughter, uh, and so the president was asked about it, and he said that Trudeau was two faced. But then I, I think I heard him in kind of the next sentence say that he's a good guy. It's all. He's a good guy. He's a, he's a nice guy. Nice guy. Maybe having a little little fun yeah. with. with with Trudeau through all this. John, what was your your sense of how the impeachment uh, the impeachment hearings are hanging over this president as he travels abroad? A lot's been made of this trip. The timing of it, obviously, it's a mostly a celebratory event, the 70th anniversary uh, of NATO. Um, the president um, often says he would like to relish those times where he gets to just do the job of being president. Uh, getting laughed at is hardly a good thing, but how much, how much is your sense that this White House is consumed by impeachment or are they able to put it to the side? Well, I think that they've kind of gotten their act together in terms of how they've been responding to all this. And if you look at what's been happening since Adam Schiff kicked off the, uh, you know, formerly the, the impeachment inquiry and the Intelligence Committee, there have been a lot of very compelling witnesses. Uh, there have been perhaps some embarrassing revelations that have come out, embarrassing to the White House. But nothing has changed the political dynamics. If you look at the public polling, it hasn't moved the needle. If you look at, more importantly, uh, the situation in Congress, we still don't... I mean, I can't... Maybe you can, Rick. I can't find a Republican that seems ready to support uh, impeaching the president, uh, even over in the in the Senate side, where you've got some more independent-minded uh, Republican senators. I, I, I don't see any indication of anybody stepping forward and would, being in a position where they would support removing the president from office. So in some ways, the I mean, th- even throughout these this tough series of, of hearings, things politically on this have, have actually looked pretty good for the president. But I can tell you watching him and, and, and watching him here at the, the NATO meetings, um, talking to people who are talking to the president regularly, this is weighing on him. This is bothering him. You hear some of his advisors, you hear, you know, Brad Parscale, his campaign manager, has, has, has made this made this argument that this is actually good for them. It's rallying Republicans. It's a partisan impeachment. Um, it's, you know, solidified their base. It's not helped the, the Democrats. I mean, that may or may not be true, all of it, but I can tell you 
the president doesn't think this is good. The president is this clearly weighs on him. And there was a very interesting moment when he was asked about whether or not he would let his senior advisors testify, which of course we know they've blocked every step of the way. You know, the idea they've ordered, you know, Mulvaney's is ordered not to testify, Rick Perry, uh, Mike Pompeo, uh, on and on and on. They, they, they've said that they don't, you know, they, they don't want to, they don't want to treat this like a legitimate inquiry. So they've asked, you know, the president's current and and former senior advisors. They said, don't testify. And but so the president was asked about that, and and listen to what he said. When it's fair, it will be fair in the Senate. I would love to have Mike Pompeo. I'd love to have Mitch. I'd love to have uh, Rick Perry uh, and many other people testify. But I don't want them to testify when this is a total fix. You know what a fix is? It's a fix. No, but I want them to testify, but I want them to testify in the Senate where they'll get a fair trial. So, Rick, he's saying, first of all, it looks like he's looking forward to a Senate trial as if... uh, it's inevitable, which would mean that the House would vote, and I, I think it's all very, very likely. Um, but he's saying that it, when it moves over to the Senate, which of course is Republican-controlled, he's expecting a fairer process. He's all in favor of of these officials testifying. Now, there's a couple of things about that, Rick. For, first of all, I I'll believe it when I see it. The president said many, many, many times that he would testified under oath to Robert Mueller, the special counsel. It, of course, never happened. Um, and, he, and he made that promise. I mean, he made that promise over and over again over the course of, of many, many months. And the other thing is the reason that he just gave for not allowing Mick Mulvaney and Pompeo and I, I suppose by extension Bolton, um, he mentioned Rick Perry, testifying is not exactly the reason that the White House Counsel's Office has given. It's not exactly... They have made a case based... They've made the arguments based on privilege, executive privilege, uh, attorney-client privilege in the, in, in the case of McGahn. So now he's saying, it's just I'm just not letting him testify because it's not fair. That's a different argument, and I don't know how, And some of this stuff's going to be adjudicated in the courts. I don't know how the president's own words are going to hurt his own or, you know, how they're going to affect his own legal cases on this. Yeah, and, and I th- yeah, and that's a, it's a great point. And, and the president, um, of course, knows that Republicans control the Senate uh, and Democrats control the House. And as he's as he's speaking, uh, you, you, we referenced today's uh, today's testimony, uh, a series of constitutional law professors, three called by Democrats, one by Republicans, uh, have been talking to the House Judiciary Committee about their views on, on impeachment. And, and they've kind of they've gone down the line, John in saying explicitly that in their judgment, uh, they see enough to constitute impeachment. This is Professor Noah Feldman from Harvard as one example. President Trump's conduct, as described in the testimony and evidence, clearly constitutes impeachable high crimes and misdemeanors under the Constitution. So, John, I just checked it, and I guess that's that's game over, right? I mean, now it's now it's basically a done deal because some professors told us. Yeah, now that the Harvard professor has spoken, I think it's pretty much over. Uh, they're probably going to be packing their bags up at the White House. Um, I mean, come on. <laughs> this is, first of all, um, I mean, yeah, it, it, you got to respect the process and you bring in the experts and that's that's a good thing to do. I mean, I will all be a little bit smarter after having watched hours uh, of this. 
But uh, you have three Democratic uh, witnesses, three lawyers. Did they have to? You know, roughly two thirds of the of the three. So that would be, I think, two by my math. Um, actually. <laughs> Have donated lots of money to Democratic candidates. Uh, I mean, is, do yeah. you have to. I mean, does everything have to be completely partisan here? I mean, I, yeah, I'm, I'm not convinced of what what this gets the process. Is there yeah. a legal expert out there somewhere in the country that didn't give money to uh, a Democratic? It'd candidate? be nice to find. I, 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 I'm I'm curious. I mean, look, this, it, I think the the tour through history is fascinating, and these are these are substantial individuals that know a lot about the process. Yes, no doubt. I don't think you're making up a lot of minds with with professors. But it, this is one moment that I think broke through from uh, from the morning uh, that we heard from these experts. This is Professor Pamela Carlin from Stanford Law School, and really pushing back at the suggestion by the Republican ranking member on the committee, uh, Doug Collins from Georgia, that, uh, that, that no one on this panel, none of these academics actually cared about the facts, that all they cared about were, were politics. Everything I know about our Constitution and its values and my review of the evidentiary record, and here, Mr. Collins, I would like to say to you, sir, that I read transcripts of every one of the witnesses who appeared in the live hearing because I would not speak about these things without reviewing the facts. So I'm insulted by the suggestion that as a law professor, I don't care about those facts. But everything I read on those occasions tells me that when President Trump invited, indeed demanded foreign involvement in our upcoming election, he struck at the very heart of what makes this a republic to which we pledge allegiance. That demand, as Professor Feldman just explained, constituted an abuse of power. So again, whether whether or not minds get made up here, there's a passion and a clarity that I think some of the professors have brought to this. And uh, to the extent that this is a big national education, uh, trying to cut through the partisanship of the moment. And uh, we saw attacks on witnesses uh, through the, the House Intelligence Committee hearings. I think that's it, it's at least compelling to, to watch and to, and to absorb as this process moves forward, John. I, I agree entirely. But, but let me ask you, if you agree with what I said earlier, I, I do not see any sign of Republican wavering on this. Now that, first of all, do, do you do you? Am I missing anybody? No, you, I, I, no, you are not missing anybody at this stage. Anybody who's a current Republican member of Congress who've said that they are uh, inclined to support um, the impeachment uh, proceedings, uh, actual impeachment or removal of the president. I, look, I, I, I think we've seen a calcification in public opinion, and uh, really what the what these events of the last couple of weeks have done have dug people in even further on the sides that they came down. Uh, and we now know, because polling is, has confirmed it pretty substantially, a, a vast majority of the American people think the president did something wrong. A vast majority of the public does not think that he should be impeached or removed from office. Uh, and there's a critical piece of this of about 10, 12 percent or so in the polling that I saw from 538 and, and our partners over there that says that, yeah, he did something really bad, but let the election decide it. And I think as a political matter, that's where this is going to end up landing, that uh, that enough of the American public does not seem to be on board for the idea of this being so uh, outrageous in action that it requires this ultimate uh, uh, kind of death penalty of politics that instead we've got an election in less than a year. And look, I, th- I still think you can make a very compelling argument, even given that set of facts, that this is a process that, that the Democrats should have gone through, uh, that they uh, see a set of damning uh, 
facts coming out of uh, re- regarding the president's actions, the actions of those around him, and that you know, regardless of the partisanship, uh, they needed to go forward, uh, bring these witnesses in, investigate this, uh, and and hold this vote. But if you look back to where Nancy Pelosi was at the very beginning of this, I know I know we've talked about this, but I think it bears repeating. She was the one who laid down a very clear marker back in the in March of this year saying that you don't go forward with impeachment unless it is going to be she didn't just say bipartisan, she said overwhelmingly bipartisan. So, you know, I I mean I I, I don't know. I mean I think I think that she was kind of put in a in a, in a, a bit of a box here based on the revelations of the president's own behavior and she felt she had to go forward and that may history may you know ultimately judge that to be entirely the right decision but it is not the plan that she had yeah and i'll tell you john the democrats i've talked to in the last couple of days really since since right before the thanksgiving break they're of the mind that this just has to move quickly now and and get it done with and there's not additional testimony uh, that they think will 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 change things in a sufficient manner that's worth waiting around for, uh, despite court rulings that would suggest that they would be prepared to get testimony from some individuals. I don't see them waiting around for it. I see them moving ahead, continuing on this very aggressive pace of a vote before uh, before Christmas uh, to to punt it over to the Senate and hope that everything is is cleared up. Uh, by the time the the Democrats move on to the Democratic nominating process that's going to dominate uh, so much of 2020. It has overshadowed early maneuverings in the race, and, and some of the movement we've seen, I think, reflects that. Uh, but I think Democrats just, just kind of want to be done with this at this point. All right, Rick, we have to take a quick break. But I, I do, before we close out this podcast, I, I, I've got to ask you, because I'm over here, I'm, I'm tracking the events uh, from the other side of the Atlantic, uh, Kamala Harris out of the race. Uh, some interesting, uh, I think, uh, repercussions from that move. I want to. I want to come back after this break. Ask you why she got out and why it was that you so clearly and decisively predicted that she would be the Democratic nominee. We'll be back in a minute. Rick, uh, before the break, we were discussing your your prediction about Kamala Harris. Did you want to revise that? Uh, look, I thought um, that she was the just right candidate at the just right moment. And I was just wrong. And uh, so was she. And so were a lot of people that put stock in it. When 20,000 people showed up in Oakland for that launch, uh, even before that, when people talked about her as an heir to the Obama legacy, um, she seemed like she was on a, um, I wouldn't say a glide path, but a very strong path as someone that could unite some of the progressive and establishment um, strains of the party, someone who came to office as a, as a prosecutor, uh, as a multiracial woman, uh, as, a, as a United States senator. It seemed like she had it all together. And looking at the team that she surrounded herself with, it was all coming together. She had a whole group of ambitious and talented, uh, many of them former Hillary Clinton aides. This was the next crop of uh, of, of major movers and shakers in the Democratic Party who were, had signed on to her campaign. They worked for her Senate office before that, many of them. She had it all going on. And, you know, right through that debate where she took on Joe Biden, it looked like things were moving in the right direction. And then something else happened. And this campaign uh, fizzled pretty big time. So what what is the something that happened? What happened? Well, I think there's a lot of things that happened. I mean, the most 
the most immediate cause is that she ran out of money. And she was in a position where she was going to have to ask her supporters to buy in on her when she did not have a realistic path to the nomination. And what I'm told is that she looked at this, gave it a good hard look over the Thanksgiving holiday, ran all the numbers, recognized that there really wasn't a path. And, and to quote one aide who, who uh, had was part of this decision-making process, um, she said to herself and her staff, I'm not going to BS people. Uh, and that um, I'm not going to be in this just to run to the end. More practically speaking, we were coming up fast on the date where she would have to file for the California primary. Uh, That is a Super Tuesday state. It was long thought to be a very strong state for her as someone who'd run statewide and won a couple of times in California. Uh, But she was facing some daunting poll numbers that suggested that she could get embarrassed there and politically weakened by that. Getting out now preserves her viability as a VP pick. Uh, It probably successfully heads off any idea of a primary challenge to her in 2022. She goes back to her perch in the Senate uh, and she's ready to fight. Uh, And uh, look, we saw the pictures of her dancing with her aides uh, back in the office. Is not someone that's going to go away and hide. Uh, there's no hiding the fact, though, that this was a, a massive disappointment of a campaign. Uh, and I think to get to the broader question, it was a it was a campaign that tried to be kind of everything and in the process became nothing. And we saw multiple slogans, uh, multiple different lines of attack, multiple different areas of focus. And uh, none of that stuck in an environment where a couple of candidates started to just go viral. And, and she she started out. I mean, she was kind of all over the map uh, ideologically. She she jumped in, trying to move as far to the left as she could quickly as possible. She she signed on to Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All plan. Um, she staked out a, a series of, of positions, you know, designed to uh, appeal to the progressive wing of the party. And you know, then she you know, I mean, she she ran against basically her own record on on criminal justice. Uh, uh, as, as a you know prosecutor in California, and then she seemed to kind of try to pivot back towards the middle. Maybe it was too late. I mean, what, what would have happened if she had come out and tried to stake the ground that, that that Biden has staked out, and said, "Look, I am a tough on crime, former prosecutor. Uh, you know, I'm I am a I am a I am a liberal, but I'm a, I'm a realistic liberal." And you know, if she had. You know, instead, uh, come out against the Medicare for All idea and said, "Well, you know, come out, you know, again with something similar to what what Buttigieg and and, and Biden have done." Would she have taken off? Uh, possible. I mean, look, I think I think this it's, it would have been hard to to break through in this environment because the whole party has moved so far to the progressive side that being a proud moderate is difficult. Um, even Joe Biden doesn't really like that label. People to judge doesn't either, even as they portray themselves. Uh, the the left is dominant at this moment in the party, and Kamala Harris sensed that and worried about that and the the haunting. But you had two figures who had a, who had that marked out pretty well, right? You've got. Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. That was a crowded. That's right. Crowded place to, to try to make your mark. That's right. Although you know, the, the, it does it does leave this strange scenario where the most diverse field in the history of presidential politics um, is winnowing down to the, the phase where the only six candidates to have qualified for the debate in a couple of weeks out in California are white. And that's one area where Kamala Harris saw real strength as a possibility if she could unite African-American voters, maybe Latino voters as well. Um, She's also she's Indian-American, Asian voters. So there there was a thought around that. Uh, And I'm curious to see what it means going forward, because Cory Booker, um, uh, Julian Castro, they have both been explicit in, in expressing what they view as anger at a process that has forced out. 
uh, uh, all of the all of the candidates of color from the next debates. Now it's a little disingenuous because Kamala Harris actually had qualified for the next debate should she have decided to to stay in. So I, I'm not buying the notion that there was a, a media conspiracy against candidates of color or um, some kind of you know false notions about what billionaires can do. Yes, Tom Steyer and, and Michael Bloomberg have. Um, have gobbled up a lot of ad time, but that's not the reason Kamala Harris didn't catch on or the reason that Cory Booker and Julian Castro didn't catch on. All of that said, I think there could be another look for one or both of those men as a as a possible alternative that people may say, look, we want to have that at least that additional choice. It's important to have more diversity among our finalists than we're going to see on stage in a couple of weeks. All right, Rick, and how many days until uh, the Iowa caucuses? Oh, I don't know. Two months now. We're, we're, about, we're about 60 days away. Two months. Okay, I'll take that. I'll take that. That's good enough. All right, good. Pretty, it's pretty All wild. Right. To be fair, Rick, I, I thought you were right about Harris, but uh, don't, don't, you know, it's just between us. Uh, All right, that is all the time we have for Powerhouse Politics. I want to thank Trevor Hastings, the entire Powerhouse Politics team. We will be back, and I will be back on the other side, our side, your side of the Atlantic, uh, next week. Thank you for listening.